Right. Hello, everyone. My name's Steph, one of the pastors here. Um, very warm welcome to you, whether you are old or new at Revelation Church. So this is the start of a new series, as you've just heard, on King David. What I'm going to do, just to help you understand where David fits in the whole uh, story, is that I'm going to um, tell you the, the Old Testament story um, kind of in a, in a bit of an overview, just to do that so you, um, you've got a sense of where he fits. It, I, it is important if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, to understand um, the story because it becomes your story when you become a Christian. You know, like naturally when we're born, we have a story. When none of us are born into a vacuum, um, our parents have lived a certain way and their parents a certain way, and that's our story. You don't just arrive... This is why the Bible says this is so-and-so, son of so-and-so. It matters. It matters where you've come from. It has an impact. Your experience of life is hugely influenced by your parents' story and how they live. And when you become a believer, what happens is is that, yes, yes, your natural story remains, but actually you inherit, you come into a new story, a spiritual heritage. And that spiritual heritage is, um, is recorded in this book in the Bible. So you become sons and daughters of Abraham, for example. So suddenly, this, this man Abraham, Abraham, who you may have heard of or may not have even heard of before, in some strange way, becomes your spiritual father. There's something that you, you, you've come from him in some way. So you've got to understand that in order to understand yourself. Otherwise, you'll be a believer with a really weak sense of your identity. And what you'll end up doing then is you, you'll end up understanding yourself merely in light of your natural history with a kind of a thin understanding of your spiritual history. And you can, you, that can lead you down some really um, dead ends where you think, how did I get here? And it's because you've not understood who you are now when you're in Christ. Because when you come in Christ, you become a brand new creation. And so you're still, you're still who you are and your natural story, still, it's still relevant. But actually the, the thing that really shapes who you are is, is, is your spiritual heritage in Jesus. So it's really important to understand it. So just quickly to help you understand the story, um, Genesis 12 is a really important point in, 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 in God's salvation history because he, he highlights, he chooses a man called Abram or Abram um, who, who is not a worshipper of the true God. He probably would have been a, a moon worshipper or something like that because of where he lived in the world and that was the, the God they tended to worship. And he, he calls him out of uh, Mesopotamia and calls him into um, this land that we now know as uh, Palestine, Israel, this area. He calls him here. And what he does is he makes him promises and uh, he reveals himself to him and he makes him promises. And primarily the promises are to do with land, but the main promise is to do with offspring and that his descendants will become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so much of Genesis really follows this history of this man who is walking by faith in a promise that God's given him but has not yet, is not yet fulfilled. And all kinds of things happen on the way. But um, I think about 25 years later, him and his wife finally have this son, Isaac, the son of promise. And Isaac marries Rebecca. They have twins Um, Jacob and Esau, even though Esau's the oldest, God says, actually, no, my promise is going to be realised through Jacob. You can imagine all the tension that causes. It's a very human story. The Bible never tries to cover up the human difficulties, the tensions, the trials, the hardships, the failures. It never brushes over. You know, like you read some people's biographies, you think, wow, they seem perfect. The Bible does not do that. It's very honest. 
And so uh, we see Jacob, this younger twin, through whom God has decided his promises will be realized. He has 12 sons. He has a favorite called Joseph. As a result, the other kids, well, not just as a result of that, but maybe also Joseph caused it a bit. Um, he's not very well loved by his brothers and they betray him and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in, going down into Egypt um, where he goes through all kinds of trials. But as he stays faithful to God and God's promise, God Eventually, I think it's over, over about 17 years, brings him to a place of incredible profile and influence in the land of Egypt. Around this time, there's a really serious drought also surrounding Egypt. And um, through Joseph's wisdom, Egypt has stored up um, grain in preparation for this famine that God spoke to Joseph about through a dream in advance. And so everyone from the surrounding area starts coming to Egypt for food, including Joseph's brothers. Um, they come down, Joseph recognizes them. There's this very emotional um, episode that goes on, as you can imagine, of restoration and forgiveness. And, but the emotions are very, very raw. In the end, the brothers with their father Jacob all come and settle into a particular part of the land of Egypt where they then multiply and uh, over 400 years or so become a very, very numerous nation. At some point in the story, a pharaoh rises up who is, he's, enough time has gone by that he doesn't really remember Joseph and all that Joseph did for the nation. And he begins to look upon the people of Israel that have grown and multiplied as a threat. He begins to worry that they are increasing in number beyond the pace of the Egyptians and that this could cause problems down the line. So he begins to persecute the Israelites um, by um, various ways, killing their firstborn sons and putting them into slavery and oppression. And uh, they, these pe- the people of Israel cry out to their God, the God of their forefather, Abraham, who hears their groan. And he raises up a saviour for them, uh, Moses. And um, we have the story of the Exodus and all the plagues. And Moses, in the end, by God's mighty hand, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, where they spend 40 years essentially wandering. Lots of amazing miracles happen, but essentially it's a period of sort of futility, really, where they shouldn't be walking in circles like this. But because of their stubborn unbelief, resisting God, God's like, this generation is not going to inherit this land I have for you. The next generation will. They get to the border of the promised land, at which point Moses dies. Joshua takes over from Moses. He leads the people of Israel into the land of promise. And you pick up the story of that in the book of Joshua, in the Bible. And then through Joshua and Judges, we find that there is some success in terms of conquering the land and becoming established there as God's people. But also uh, a pattern develops of them um, joining with other nations and starting to worship their gods and kind of bringing together the worship of the true God with the worship of idols and all the trouble that causes. And God has to deal with them. And he often brings in other nations to then oppress them. They cry out to God. They repent. God then raises up a judge, the judge delivers them, and round we go again, the same thing happens. So you go through various judges like Gideon, Samson, and other names that you will be familiar with. It gets to the point where Samuel, a prophet, he, he, he's been judging them for a period of time very righteously, but he's getting old. He asks his sons to take his place, but his sons aren't righteous, and they, they operate in, in a corrupt way. And in the end, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we don't want any more judges, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations who have got a king. And um, Samuel's heartbroken because up till this point, the reason why they had judges was that they were a theocracy, which means that they were, they were ruled by God. Um, it wasn't a democracy. It wasn't a monarchy. It was a theocracy. It was a unique situation. They were God's people ruled by God. And, and I guess these judges would be raised up, but they wouldn't rule in the same way. And Samuel's heartbroken because he's like, ah. and God says, don't worry, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. He says, but 
let them have a king. And so um, God chooses Saul. God chooses King Saul, who for a couple of years does well. And then very quickly, um, he begins to manifest characteristics which are very troubling. Um, He's much more concerned with what people think of him than what God thinks of him. He's enslaved to kind of popular opinion and and fears and envies and insecurities. And he becomes a, a very troubled man. And um, during, during, this, during this season of, I guess, changeover between, between um, the, the start of his rule and when it gets really bad, David, begins, David comes to the fore, whereby God says, to, God says to Saul, about two years in, the kingdom is torn away from you. Um, you've, you've outrightly rebelled against me. And even though Saul remains, I guess, officially in, in, in his place of authority for the next, um, how many years? <laughs> I guess for the next 10 or so years, 10 or 15 years, um, actually the anointing of God has left him. And so God, God, God says to Samuel, I've got someone else in mind and I'd like you to go and anoint him with, with oil and um, he's, the king, he's the one I want to rule uh, the nation and it's David. And really what Dave, David's, we're going to go through the story of David over these next few weeks up to, to the end of July. So I'm not going to say loads about that now. But suffice to say, Israel really only had three kings. I guess you could say four, but essentially three kings who ruled over them as a whole nation. Um, Saul, David, and then Solomon. Now Solomon's son Rehoboam did reign, but for a very, very short while. And um, the, the, the nation divided under his rule. And from that point on, the rest of the Old Testament, as you read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, is essentially two nations, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south. And so Saul before David didn't do well. Solomon, after David, didn't do well. He inherited really uh, um, a lot of what David had accomplished. And he did well for a period of time, but he went really astray and essentially sowed the seeds of division that his son, Rehoboam, again, through foolish decisions, but the seeds had been sown through Solomon for division of the nation. So the only king who really did well was David. And yet he was far from perfect. And we'll see that as we go through. But he did well. And there are two phrases essentially that the Bible uses about David that I just want to draw your attention to as to help us understand why we want to look at David. The first is in um, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13. And it's just a short phrase, but it's around the time where Saul is beginning to manifest his really bad characteristics. It's it's not looking good. And um, in in chapter 13, verse 14... um, Samuel says this to Saul. Samuel the prophet says to King Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big David phrase. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. There's something about his internal life that God has seen and God's like, yes. There's, there's something about the state of him internally. Which leads to the second phrase, which you'll find in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 36. This is the summary of David's life. Now bear in mind, he made one huge error that led to some other big ones around it. So his life wasn't perfect, but it is said this of David. Acts 13, verse 36, that David served the purpose of God in his own generation. What a wonderful thing to have spoken over your life. That in your generation you serve the purpose of God. So, so all of us are alive for such a time as this. 
You know, we, the Bible makes it clear that we're not born randomly, but that we are born in the, in the program of God to serve his purpose in our generation. And so there's something about the man's internal life that enabled him to be fruitful, serving the purpose of God in his generation. And I think what a, what a wonderful model to look at over these weeks, that God would work on us internally, that we might be able to serve his purpose in our generation. So that's where we're going with it. Also, there's no getting away from the fact that there's something about the rule of David that points very powerfully to the rule of Jesus. Um, it's, that's ve- that comes through very, very uh, powerfully. And, and even when, when prophesying about Jesus, it talks about him reigning on the throne of David. He, he embodies, he personifies righteous rule. He personifies authority used in a godly way. And the, uh, Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of that. But there's something about David that points us towards Jesus. And this series will be all about David, but really it'll be all about Jesus. And we'll make that very, very clear as we go through. David is most famous for his songs. The book in, in the Bible called Psalms, um, there were 150 Psalms recorded. And David is explicitly responsible for 73 of those. So he wrote almost half of the Psalms. He's, he's famous for his defeat of Goliath in the Valley of Elah. We will, uh, we will look at that at some point during the series. He's, he's famous for his friendship with Jonathan, um, which fascinatingly, as I've done a little, little bit of reading on that, it appears that there could well have been 30 years between them. Doesn't look like that in the cartoon Bible, does it? It's amazing how much of your theology gets shaped by the cartoon Bible. You don't even realise it. But yeah, it seems like, and obviously I need to do a little bit more reading, but I think there was these things, oh wow, never thought of that. He's also obviously a fam- famous for his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the surrounding murder, deception, tragedy. I mean, it's a really ugly, ugly episode in his life. And of course, we've got to look at that. We're not going to skim over that because God wants to speak into the ugly areas of our lives, Right? God wants, God, we need to, life is not a bed of roses, is it? <laughs> Things happen, we make crazy mistakes, we make foolish choices. Things happen to us that we had no say And You think, well, what does God have to say about that? Well, we've got to delve into the, some of the darkest things that go on in the Bible to find God in there to help us realise that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Yeah? Sin and darkness never have the final word in the gospel, ever. But it's not necessarily an easy journey. So all I want to do really through our time here today as I introduce the series, I want to say a few things about David, which I think, which, which I think just are, um, should, should warm our hearts and should, should stir our appetite to find out more about him. The first thing I want to say is that David was a worshipper and a warrior. Um, he, was a, he, was, he was at the same time a delighted man and a dangerous man. And um, he didn't spend, he, he knew how to sing, he knew how to dance, but he didn't spend the whole time dancing around the streets of Jerusalem. He also went off to war. Now, I'm not making any political statements or more or anything like that. At this point, it's not about that. There's a spiritual uh, point, a spiritual principle to this about becoming those who are delighted in God, but also dangerous to the forces of darkness in the spiritual realm. That's, that's the kind of people God is looking for. People that are genuinely able to find delight in him. If, you can't, if you're not delighting in him, 
um, you're in a quite a vulnerable place. I would say that, and I'm not saying that just to be dramatic, but I read a quote once that says, if you're not regularly taking in appropriate beauty, you will at some point be taken out by beauty. There'll be another kind of beauty that gets you. And so it's so important that our hearts are gripped with the love of God. And that even as we sing these songs, that we've had what a wonderful time, that we, that we actually pull ourselves in and say, I'm going I'm to remain in that place of delight in you, Lord, delight in your forgiveness over my life, that you have forgiven me from some horrible, shameful things. And you've got hold of those nasty things and me, and you've gone east, west, as we heard earlier. And now you've cleaned my conscience and I can stand before you. Wow! should bring delight to our souls, delight to our hearts. And so we become a delighted people. But not only that, that we do grow in increasingly becoming dangerous people, that we are able to speak out against injustice, that we're able to pray into things and take ground where stuff needs to change, that we're not, we're not just singers, we're not just worshippers, we're warriors. And hopefully as we look at David, we'll soak in that and that will help us to um, obviously see through David to Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah. The Bible says that Jesus was anointed with oil of gladness beyond his companions. He was the happiest one of the bunch. Out of all of the disciples and all of the merry band that followed Jesus through, he was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all of them. He knew about joy. He knew about joy. He knew about delight. He delighted to do the Father's will. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. He had delight. But you don't want to cross Jesus. There were times where the disciples didn't, were too scared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> he, he, wasn't, he wasn't light. He wasn't a lightweight. He wasn't just a nice guy. There's more to him than that. There's this weight. There's this sense of, that's all right. To let God build you into the image of Christ means he will increase your gravitas. That's what it means. You want to become more like Jesus? He will increase your gravitas. There will be a weight that comes upon you as a person in your soul, an internal authority. You don't need labels or titles, an internal authority where you know him and you know who you are in him and you refuse your life to be defined simply by what others say about you, but you listen to him. Become dangerous to the devil, dangerous to destructive situations because you come and you bring life. So a worshiper and a warrior. Second thing is that he's a man of mercy. I love this. David remains sensitive to the plight of the poor, even when he's ruling a nation. In fact, when he's messed up with Bathsheba and he's in this web of deception, he's spun himself an absolute web of deception. God reveals what he's done to a prophet called Nathan. It's interesting. The way Nathan gets to him is he goes to him. He says, do you know what's happened, David? David says, what? He says, there's this poor guy in, your, in the country you're in charge of. He's only got one lamb. Some other guy's got loads of lamb and sheep. You know what he's done? What's he done? That guy with all the lambs and sheep, he's nicked the other guy's lamb and sheep. David's like, you what? We're going to get him. And Nathan says, you're the man. But it's an interesting strategy. He knows how to get to David. He appeals to his sense of justice and hatred of seeing uh, those with little robbed. He hates it. He's a man of mercy. He's a man whose heart remains tender to the poor and to the humble, even though he rules a nation. And it's just, it's a wonderful attribute. It's stunning. It's just like Jesus. All, all authority. All authority. He's got time for children. 
The disciples haven't got time for children. They're trying to keep them away, the nuisances. The Bible says Jesus was indignant. Let the children come to me. I care about them. Okay. <laughs> it's time to play some games. Time to do some stuff with the kids. Are they just children? No, they're not just children. They're children. They matter. In fact, Jesus says, you want to inherit the kingdom, you've got to become just like one. He's, the kingdom belongs to these. And also he says, the, uh, their angels are constantly beholding the face of my father in heaven. Who even knows what that means? But it's something great about kids and angels. He cares about the poor. He cares about the lepers. He cares about the marginalised. He cares about the widows. He cares about the orphans. He cares about the woman with the issue of blood. He cares about those who society looks down on. Mercy. That's our Jesus. I'll tell you, as, as we mature as a church and among us in our ranks, people come through with increasing influence in life, in the city, increasing power, increasing authority. That mercy, that, that, that regard for the poor, that um, ability to be able to relate to the smallest, that has to remain. Never grow beyond that. One of, the, one of the most stunning psalms, to my mind, is um, written by David as the king. As the king, right? He says this. He says, Psalm 131. Oh, Lord, my heart isn't lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Listen to this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But you're the king. You know, like sometimes you go into a meeting and you realise, oh, actually, I'm above my pay grade here. I don't know what anyone's talking about. These things are too great and too marvellous for me. And you <laughs> keep quiet or you realise you've walked into the wrong meeting or whatever. These are things too great and too marvellous. You know, they're beyond where you're at. He's the king. He's the king of the nation. And yet he still recognises there are things that I just, he'll never understand. He says, you know what? He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. When a child is weaned, it no longer screams the whole time. It knows when food is coming. And so there's peace about it. You see, it's the king. He's still got that about him, that humility, that mercy. And it's, it's, it's Christ-like and it's important for us. that we never. If, you've, if you mature out of that, you've matured into immaturity. Okay? <laughs> you ever get too big, too big for the kids, too big for the poor, too big for the broken, you've gone the wrong way. You're, going, you're not going up, you're going down. In the early days of our church life, someone said to us, the lower you go, the higher God will take you. The more you care about those who have got nothing, the more God will exalt you. And we said a big fat amen to that. Absolutely, because we remember where we've come from. We remember where we've come from. And his mercy over our lives. So there's mercy. The third thing is what I'll describe as the friendship and the fear. He's intimate with God, but he's really reverent of God. He, he walks this incredible, he, he, he says things in the Psalms like, my soul longs for you. Like the deer pants for the water, my soul longs for you. He just loves God. And his he's, he's language isn't polite in the presence of God. It's kind of, it's just desperate longing, love, devotion. It's, it's a little bit audacious. It's a, it's a little bit shocking at times. He's intimate with God. But actually there's this incredible reverence of God to the extent that that. When King Saul was trying to murder him, King Saul came into a cave to relieve himself. David was in that cave, but further back. And David's friend said to him, God's given him into your hands. But David said, but he's the Lord's anointed. 
And so David said, well, what I'll do, I'll just cut a bit off his cloak. And then after Saul had done his business and goes out the cave, David follows him out and says, look, look what I could, look what I could have done. The reason he goes out and, 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 and says, look, is because as soon as he cut his robe, his conscience struck him. Why? Because he damaged the robe of the Lord's anointed. Now, at this point, Saul is a wretch. There's nothing, there's nothing to commend anything about Saul, but he's the Lord's anointed. And so David has reverence for God's hand is on this man. God called this man. There's wonderful reverence. And we see the same thing in Jesus, just this extraordinary intimacy with God at the baptism, the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. The father says, my son whom I love. You think, wow, what intimacy. But then this reverence, you know, in the garden of Gethsemane, he's facing the cross. And he just says, not my will, father, yours be done. He bows. He's just devoted to the will of God. It's wonderful. There's this, there's this friendship and the fear. And if you want to be close with God, you've got to have both. You've got to have both. You can't be over familiar. But he doesn't want you distant. He wants you close. And the Bible uses terms in the same psalm like rejoicing with trembling. Kiss the sun. Bow down. You know, it's, it, that's, that's what it's like. We see it in Christ. We see it in David. Fourthly, and this one's massive, he's a man of destiny, but the destiny on him is severely tested. God calls him to extraordinary things, to lead a nation. But you look at the journey, is a one heck of a roller coaster. You think, oh, 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 well, it's like, is it going to happen? And it's a mess, to be honest. There are times where, frankly, it's a mess. And you think, oh, it's so human. It's so flawed. And even him trying to navigate his way through, he does some things. And it's just narrative. The the, the writer never comments, that was good, that was bad. But you're left thinking, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. When he pretends to be a madman and dribbles down his beard. Because he, he knows that if this king sort of realises that he's in, his, he's in his right mind, he'll kill him and he's dribbling outside the gate. You think, are you, is, are you trusting God? I, I, I don't know. Are you trusting? I don't, I don't, know, what, don't know what to do with it. Don't, you don't know what to make of it. When he, when, he, when he agrees to take Goliath's sword with him, when he's on the run, it's the only sword that can be found. He agrees to take it. You think, David, have you sort of degenerated from someone who just trusted in God to someone who just pick up whatever's around now? Are you, are you, have you moved from the spirit to the flesh? It's, it's hard to know. And there's no confidence. It's messy. How comforting is that? Anyone ever thought to themselves, wow, life's messier than I thought it would be. It's comforting. It's not sterilized. It's not sanitized. It's not neatly cut. It's not straightforward. Listen, life is not straightforward. Life with God is not straightforward. Three or four said amen. <laughs> Life with God is not straightforward. Only one said amen that time. We're losing people all the time. There's a sense of timing that, that is, God's got a time to fulfill his promise for David. And it's a real adventure getting there. Jesus frequently, the things he says is things like, now, now, now the hour has come or it says it wasn't his time. And so Jesus lived with this sense of the time, the hour. He lived with this sense of destiny over his life. He lives with it. You see, he, he knows what to do in certain situations. They, they take him to the edge of a cliff to push him off and he walked right through them because he knew now wasn't his time. And then when they go to crucify him, he just passively lets them do so. Why? Now's his time. He understands there's a time into his life. And we've got to understand we are not the captain of our own destiny. We are not. There are sovereign seasons that we have to learn to walk through with God. And and there's no point trying to kick out and create your own season. You cannot create your own season. It's always folly. 
We should know that as British people. The sun appears for a day in March and we all go, wow. And we never learn, do we? Wow, spring's here. You think we'd learn by now? And then followed by three weeks of Siberian um, wind blast. And then another day, another time it happens on the first day of April. And we go, hey, it's really here now, guys. And then, probably, you know, and then another northeaster blows in. And then maybe May, we're sort of looking, it's a bit of, maybe this is it, you know. It's, this, you can't change the season. It's under his sovereign oversight. You are not the captain of your destiny. I don't care how much faith you've got. That's not how it works. Faith is about believing God for his promises, not about carving out your thing by shouting and saying hallelujah a lot. It's not how it works. Shouting's fine, it's saying hallelujah's fine. But you, you cannot overcome his sovereignty by doing that. He knows what he's doing. So it's important that we understand that. Um, that we understand our life is not about personal fulfillment. Our life is not about bucket lists. It's not what life's about, folks. It's about bearing tons of fruit. It's about living life to the full. It's about fellowship with God. And it's not like there's not good things he wants us to get involved in. Of course, all kinds of wonderful things. But it's not centred around me and what I'm going to do. Fits into what he's doing. It's not about me. It's about him. It's very important we understand that. Last but one is failure, forgiveness and restoration. <laughs> I mean, he really messes it up. I mean, he really messes it up. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's really bad. Um, it's ugly. It's, it's humanity at its worst. It's cover up. It's deception. It's sly, tricky, lustful. It, it, every, it, oh, all that is that. That's what this episode is. But it's there and it's been recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can learn how on earth can someone who loves God navigate their way out of that? (laughs) Because David does. David does. Now with Jesus, we never have failure. (laughs) He never has to ask for forgiveness or be restored. But you know what? He knew knew temptation in every way like we do. And the wonder of the gospel is, is that he's been through every temptation and has remained totally pure. So David could not go to the cross for us, but Jesus can. And there has, there, there has been one who has been through every temptation but has not sinned. And his name is Jesus. And he is the Lamb of God who's been sacrificed for the sins of the world so that we can come today and celebrate and sing our songs because he's died and he's rose again and he's done it. Hallelujah. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And that's why you can look at Abraham, David, Moses, all these amazing people. You can look at Hannah. You can look at Sarah, heroes, heroines of the Bible. They've all got to take you to Jesus because none of them, none of them can do what Jesus has done. He's absolutely unique. But we do need to look at this story because one way or another, sooner or later, all of us will find ourselves in a pickle that we've either uh, got into by our own folly or that just being part of a fallen world where we're somehow a part of. Um, God does not promise to keep you from that. Okay, so it's important. Finally, this whole idea of heaven and earth. David is very, very human, and yet probably one of the most God-aware characters in the whole Bible. And he, he manages to bring together this, the reality of heaven and earth in his life, and it's 
so appealing. <laughs> He's not super spiritual. He, he cares about friendship. Um, he cares about relationships. He, he knows how to cry. He knows how to mourn. Um, he, he loves art and music. He's, he's human. He's normal. <laughs> he loves his family. He's, 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 he's normal. And yet, actually, he brings with him the sense of the presence of God, maybe unlike anyone else. Everyone's knees are rattling at Goliath and suddenly David enters the scene and the whole atmosphere changes. Why? Because here comes someone who's impressed with God. He just, the whole atmosphere changes because he just brings that sense of the presence of God with him. He's anointed. He writes songs that call, lift your heart and you soar in heavenly places. He's, he, it's this blend of heaven and earth. Um, he's rugged. He's, he's earthy. Um, it's like Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the boat. He wasn't pretending he was asleep in the boat. It wasn't like he was asleep. All right? He was tired, so he went to sleep because he's human. He got tired. He got hungry. He got frustrated. He got surprised. He was full of joy at times. He was very angry at other times. He went to weddings and to parties and then he walks on the water and then he turns the water into wine. Not the same water. He was walking on different water. He, he, heals, he causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. You get around Jesus, you get around serious normality and serious supernatural activity. And you think, that's what he wants his church to look like. Yeah, that's, that's what he wants his church to look like. And, um, you know, so you don't leave your personality at the door when you become a Christian. Amen? Please, for God's sake, please. He created you. Imagine that. Imagine if every time I, 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 I'm walking past my house, or maybe I come back from work, approach the house, I hear laughter and fun in the house. I open a door and it suddenly goes really muted and really quiet. And everyone, quick, where's my Bible? You know. And then I get and everyone's flicking through. Oh, yeah. I think sometimes God's like, what are you lot doing? What are you doing? Like, it's great that you read your Bible, but you know, it's okay to laugh and talk about other things as well. Do you know? Sometimes, sometimes to get to know a Christian, you, you, have to, you have to deliberately not pray, remove all Bibles and, and scripture fridge magnets, remove, hide, and get the Monopoly board out to get to know them. And then when they flip it up in the air, you go, okay, I'm getting to know you a little bit now. Things, <laughs> right, so you're like that. Okay, right. Rather know what we've got and it be real, know what we've really got with one another and it be real, than this kind of superficial skirting around the edges, praise the Lord, thing. Yeah? It's not real. God delights in truth in the most part, the Bible says. Let it be real. Let it be honest. He does not deal with unreality. He does not deal with nonsense. I think he's often quite tired and bored with us. <laughs> Sorry. He does love us, but, you know, he's just like, come on. Who are you? I made you. I made you. You're not inherently wrong. Sin has corrupted every part, but you're not inherently wrong. You're inherently made, designed by God. <laughs> In his image. 
He, he delights in the work of his hands. I had to do, God, I'll end with this. God, a bit of testimony. God, God had to deal with me on this years ago. I heard a sermon where some brilliant American said in a wonderful American preachy accent, you know, God don't make no junk. And I, I was sort of struggling with sort of self-loathing and all that, you know. And it's like, God don't mean no junk. And I was like, he doesn't. Actually, me, me, me considering myself in this way is really dishonouring to him. It's really, it's really not good, you know. I'm his workmanship. I'm his work of art. Yeah? I, yeah? It's like, wow, okay, there's a reverence thing there in terms of saying, wow, okay, Lord. I had to repent of that. It's honouring to him to say, Lord, just thank you, bless you, that I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. <gasps> wow. Thank you. And um, so I don't know how we got into that. What the point was that? That was about heaven and earth. Yeah, so being real. Okay, so to conclude. God's strategy is always people, right? God's strategy is, is never programs and projects. It's always people. Always. From Genesis 1, we're going we're gonna to make people in our image and fill the whole earth with them. That way, the whole earth gets to know God. That's the plan. So, so, so because we've, so original mankind was made to just reflect his image, we've fallen into sin. So now, God's priority now is transformation through Christ of people. Restoration of his image through Jesus in people to fill the whole earth. Why? So that people can get to know God. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're a, you're a letter, you're an epistle, you're the Bible that people are going to read. And God's written on you with his spirit, not with ink, with his spirit, not on stone, but on your heart. You're a living letter. So God's strategy is you. <laughs> That's God's strategy. You. You letting him transform you. You letting him work in you. You letting him restore his image in you. That's his strategy. That's his strategy. You might be living on the street saying, how am I going to reach my neighbours? We should do some kind of, you come up with a programme or a project. All well and good, not wrong. Not wrong. But the heart of it is this, will you love your neighbour? Or will you hide from your neighbour? Now that's, not, that's nothing to do with the project, that's to do with what's going on in there. That's to do with love or fear. That's what that's to do with. So, God's strategy is let me let me let me absolutely this fierce love we heard about. Let me establish my fierce love in you. That'll drive out the fear. See, see, and the Bible says as we as we look at Jesus, which we're going to do through this series, as we look on Him, we behold Him, we change into His image. So we're going to look on Him, we're going to let Him work in our hearts, and so this series is for this city. This series is for your street. This series is for your workplace. This series is for your neighbours. There's a river that flows from the throne of God. It flows in and out. It's never just, oh, this is nice. God's, I've, I've got a blessing. It's the ble- yes, I will bless you and make you a blessing. Out, out, out. Leading to transformation in others' lives. Leading to the harvest coming in leading to the fullness of the harvest coming in, leading to Christ's return, leading to a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. Amen? Big stuff. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we respond in praise and honour and love to him? Should we do that? He's so good, isn't he? Such a wonderful saviour. We've got 10 minutes or so where we can um, break bread, we can sing songs. I'm sure that Luke, who's hosting today, will help us to 
know the best order to do that and the way to go about that. But I do want to draw your attention to Mactuno. Can you just wave quickly? This guy here, Mactuno, who was sharing earlier and particularly was speaking words and I feel they would have had a particular impact on maybe you if you've never known the love of God in your soul. And he was saying, call out to him. You know, if you're thinking, yeah, I want to call out and know this Jesus, come and speak to Mac after the service or speak to me. We, we will help you. We will, we, will, we, will help, we will walk with you and help you come to know Jesus because he wants to know you because he loves you. Amen? Amen. Amen.